0: Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about how tech and innovation are making the world freer, healthier, and more prosperous. Today we're talking about cryptocurrency and the dream of decentralized currency. I'm your host Paul Matsko, and with me is Cato's Director of Emerging Tech, Matthew Feeney. Uh, he's also the one among us who actually owns the most crypto. I think. Shh. 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 Let's give out your cold wall address here. And yeah, no, 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 no further comment. Yeah, no further comment. He is a he's a hodler through and through, though. So, and joining us in the studio is special co-host Diego Zulaga. Uh, a policy expert at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He's also the snazziest dresser, I should say, on our floor of the office. So
1: that's it. obviously the real reason we're having
0: you on, but welcome to the show, Diego.
1: You know why I am? It's because I didn't lose any money on my n- the crypto that I don't own over the last few months. <laughs> you can actually afford clothes, on like, <laughs>
2: unlike Feeney. I also don't think on the Cato Six floor, that's a particularly high bar. Bad dress. <laughs> no offense to Diego, but we're not the most. Yeah, it's
0: true. It's true. You, you came in. Like... You're very kind, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's start with a kind of a basic concept. Um, so cryptocurrency advocates uh, love to talk about how Bitcoin either other currencies are decentralized um, as opposed to traditional currency. What what does that mean in theory when we talk about decentralized currency?
1: So usually what we mean when we say that these networks are decentralized is that exchange that these networks facilitate uh, is not made possible by someone standing in the middle and talking to the person sending Let's call him A. The person sent A sending something to B, and then interacting with B and making sure that whatever A sent was in fact actually sent, and that the payment that B promised in exchange also happened.
0: So I send you a check for ten dollars. You want to make sure that that ten dollars
1: is real. That I mean, because that's just a piece of paper. Exactly. Right. So you know whether it's on eBay or on Uber or um, say a payments network, Visa or Mastercard. there's traditionally always been an institution in the middle that, first of all, designed the conditions under which exchange should take place, the sort of information you needed to provide, what sort of characteristics you had to have, what sort of licenses and so on, and then verified that in fact the exchange had taken place as it should have. And the idea was that that way you increase trust, you minimize fraud, and you enable more economic activity that's productive for everyone to take place. Now, the innovation of networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum is that they don't rely on a centralized counterparty and instead the conditions are created in the software protocol that gives birth to these, such that individual users can help other individual users verify the information. And the reason they do so is because they have some sort of monetary reward that comes as a product of that. So let me give you an example with Bitcoin, which is the first decentralized network. It was proposed as a system in late October 2008 by someone writing under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto. And he called it a, quote, peer-to-peer electronic cash system. Mm -hmm. And in that particular case, you would own tokens, you would own bitcoins, that you could send electronically to anybody else with a bitcoin address, which is basically your identifier on the network. And the way in which that transaction would be fulfilled is not by someone in the middle saying, actually, the funds have been sent and you have the means to deliver, but rather other people will work very hard at resolving a mathematical problem. Whoever resolves it gets the reward and gets to write the transaction, into what's called the Bitcoin blockchain, which is the ledger that's visible to everybody in which all transactions are recorded. Now, in order to win this contest, if you disagree with everybody else, say because you want to defraud the system, you want to push through a transaction that isn't true, you have to expend an enormous amount of energy because otherwise you have a very little probability of being assigned the transaction. So it's not very rewarding to go against the consensus of the system. And in that way, you encourage virtuous behavior. You're leading other users to do the things that serve other users best without having to have someone in the middle. So 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 that's the... Contribution. Of it's a way of
0: having trust without an intermediary. Is exactly. Is,
1: is the kind of the idea. That's right. Okay. So the role of the intermediary is instead performed by a combination of good mechanism design at the outset and then virtuous behavior encouraged by economic incentives uh, as the network evolves.
0: Mm. Now, you wrote a, a chapter for an upcoming uh, uh, volume, Voices of Liberty, that we're actually putting out as part of the Building Tomorrow project. Visions. Visions Vision, of Liberty. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Visions of Liberty. <laughs> I'm an editor and I don't even know the name. There you go. <laughs> um, Publishing two books now. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, and you have a nice turn of phrase. You have a nice way, I think, of putting this uh, problem of intermediaries, uh, uh, making it accessible, I think, to a broader audience, which is imagine if we inserted a new intermediary into every one of your transactions. And the example you give is that of a translator. And this actually isn't all – that out there. There are people who need translators to perform basic functions, and it's a major drag, both on their their ability to be a productive part of the economy and just – it's a pain. Um, So imagine if every time you had to go buy groceries, you had to hire a translator to come along and negotiate or be the go-between between between you and the cash register person or – and – this introduces lots of problems, right? Like, do you really trust your translator? Are they saying that those groceries cost $100, but in reality they only cost 80 and the translator is pocketing the difference? You will never know because you have to rely on this inter- intermediary. Um, and I think that's a really great way of conceptualizing the problem of intermediaries and thus why we have this kind of energy behind early cryptocurrency adv- advocacy to, well, let's get rid of these interme- intermediaries if we can, right? This this it introduces friction in the process, and that friction is, is bad. It, we want a frictionless transaction. Um, at the same time, though, you do seem a bit skeptical of the idea of complete decentralization. And... Um, Maybe you can explain for our audience some of why. Like why – so we have this vision of, hey, Bitcoin, either these other cryptocurrencies, we can remove all intermediaries. It's always going to be just point-to-point exchanges. Um, Why might that not be an achievable vision?
1: Sure. Can I first perhaps give three examples just to make a more yeah. graphic illustration of what I mean when I talk about intermediaries? So imagine yourself as a European or an American tourist in a Moroccan zouk, in one of those street markets where you're buying things and you have someone accompanying you, telling you what the merchant is saying. You can't understand what they say, but they can make you understand what the merchant says, hopefully, and also they talk to the merchant on your behalf. Now. It's obvious that he might be put in a position where the merchant gives him a share of whatever gains he makes, and he doesn't necessarily have an incentive to tell you the entire truth. He might say that a bargain you want to make is not actually, you cannot strike it, that he might lead you to someone that is not the providing you with the best goods and services or whatever it is, and uh, on that basis, take advantage of you and try to vitiate the transaction. That's a way in which sometimes... The market power, we would say, in economics of translators can cause bad outcomes. Another case is North Korea. We've all watched probably documentaries about life in North Korea. And when people visit North Korea, they're assigned a government chaperone that leads them everywhere. And that person is overseeing. Their activity while these people are in North Korea, but also are reporting to the government on what these people are doing, what these people think, they read their emails and so on. So, another way in which this role of intermediary can be violated is through government surveillance. And, you know, we have plenty of examples of this, even in freer societies with the NSA eavesdropping scandal uh, and so on. Now, the third case is when you're trying to navigate the legal system and you hire a lawyer for that. The lawyer effectively is your translator for those activities. Now, in that case, Of course, the lawyer is also vulnerable both to government um, abuse and perhaps to his or her own abuse of your ignorance of certain things for his or her own advantage. However, it would probably be too costly for us to navigate the legal system on our own so it's probably efficient to have something like a lawyer. And the question is, to what extent, on what scale, does it make sense to have an intermediary or not? And this is when I come back to cryptocurrencies. Because even though I think it is technically feasible to have a completely disintermediated system where everybody interacts on a peer-to-peer basis, I don't think very many people beyond crypto enthusiasts who are expert in the technology, and then libertarians who value particularly autonomy and privacy very highly, uh, would necessarily want to do everything on their own. They'd be quite happy for somebody else to take custody of their crypto, for somebody else to provide some oversight, for somebody else to make sure, provide certain information to government authorities for, their ta- for tax purposes and other things. And that might be efficient because it's much less costly than doing everything on one's own. And my own expectation is that if this technology is to become something mainstream and major in competing with the traditional intermediaries like visa mastercard amazon uber you name it there's going to have to be some sort of intermediary function performed there and indeed we're already seeing it hmm. well i was
2: going to ask if uh, exchanges like coinbase might be an example of something like that uh in in part, perhaps because they do a lot of the heavy lifting, new entrants find difficult, which is uh, handling your keys and actually buying crypto. Uh, do you think that's right? Are these those are kind of institutions you're talking about uh, when discussing crypto intermediaries?
1: Absolutely. I think Coinbase is a good example because it serves several functions. First of all, if you're new to this world. You go to Coinbase and you find one of the biggest exchanges and whatever they list, you know, will to some extent be compliant with existing regulation. There's, of course, a lot of uncertainty, but you can be pretty sure that if a large company like Coinbase lists them and you buy them, you're not going to be immediately in trouble, or at least you'll have some recourse, someone to talk to if you have any issues or problems. The second thing they do is they collect your information. And so for in the world that we live in, where government does control a lot of our activity, uh, and you have to comply with a lot of those regulations in order to operate, it's good to have somebody do this on your behalf, to ask you for the information that you actually need to report, and to do it in a way that is that minimizes the hassle for you. And then the third thing they do is they facilitate interaction in, in faraway places, because Coinbase happens to be licensed all over America, and it happens that if you're a cryptocurrency exchange, you need uh, a license in every state that you operate in. So being part of Coinbase means that you can trade with a lot more people than you otherwise could. So those are three key functions of an intermediary that Coinbase is serving. I mean, not to say just Coinbase, there are plenty of other exchanges there, but you know, it's just one of the bigger examples. And, uh, and it's one way in which the mainstream adop- adoption of this stuff is uh, facilitated.
0: It, it seems like it's partly a question of not allowing the ideal to be an enemy of uh, of the, or the best to be an enemy of the possible, right? So we can acknowledge that in a in an ideal world, everyone would have equal levels of knowledge, would be equal entrance into a into a, into an idealized market. Um, they would, you know, there would not be barriers of language, of of power structure, of you know uh, surveillance, et cetera. But at the same time, we don't live in that kind of world. So while it might be great if we all went to our Moroccan souk and we were we we said, you know what? I don't like the fact that I have an intermediator, this translator, who is – who I can't fully trust. So I'm going to learn a little bit of of, of Moroccan, right? Enough to get rid of – well, that might help. Some people might have the time and luxury of learning a little Moroccan. But have you learned enough Moroccan to truly have a superior advantage over – I mean, are the risks of misunderstanding with a little bit of limited Moroccan – are those risks greater than the risks of having an interpreter who you can't fully trust um but most people don't have that luxury we can't go learn a new language we can't go and and study law by ourselves most of us right so sometimes if the goal is a friction, is the minimum amount of friction in transactions between between individuals and institutions sometimes an intermediary is the way of having the least amount of friction for the maximum number of people. And I think the same thing applies to cryptocurrency, where um, just as not everyone can learn Moroccan, not everyone can can study the law, not everyone is capable in a in our at least at this point in time of figuring out the ins and outs of buying their own cryptocurrency, of maintaining a cold wallet and you know, the security, not losing their code, and etc. Um, In fact, there's probably some experts who aren't capable of that, given all the stories of people losing their Bitcoin passwords to their to their chagrin makes for a great article. But when you lose one hundred thousand dollars in cryptocurrency, I'm not sure that's that's worth it. Um, So it seems like we have that's one of those things is that there is an early energy that says here's an ideal, a completely decentralized, intermediary free uh, way of exchanging goods and services, you know, uh, with the original vision of Bitcoin. But. It's possible to allow that vision, uh, the kind of purest vision, to obscure the ways in which well, actually, sometimes intermediaries are good and helpful. If we want this to be a going mass market proposition, we need to come around to understanding that.
2: Well, it, yeah, I, I thought a lo- along those lines uh, about uh, the, the the wake of the the most recent crash and and the the publication of the Bitcoin uh, white paper because. If, if the last 10 years I think have taught us uh, anything is that actually while a lot of people are upset about the crash, they weren't upset at the concept of intermediaries per se. They were upset at a lack of regulation or, or oversight. They actually like the fact that, well, if I have a bank account, I don't have to carry money around everywhere and I have deposit insurance. And uh, if there's ever a transaction dispute, I have a party to go to and, and people like that, right? Uh, and uh, I think Diego's really onto something, pointing out the the actual narrow or small population of people that are really enthused by this. Uh, Not least, of course, uh, is the issue we haven't talked about, which is a price fluctuation, which if the original point of the thing was to be an actual competitor to the dollar or the euro, the pound, uh, it's been a bit of a failure at that. Uh, But there are potentially other applications, right? Uh, Decentralization isn't just something applicable to currency. so, Diego, do you think that it's that currency is still the, the field in which crypto has the most potential? Or do you think in, in 50 years we'll look back and we'll actually see it as uh, a technology that started that way but became applicable to many other
1: things? I think it's going to be difficult for any cryptocurrency to become money because it's not a sovereign money in the first place. So you cannot pay your taxes with it. And again, you know, the world that we live in, a lot of our liabilities on a year by year basis. And one of the most certain of our liabilities are taxes, right? Nothing more certain than death and taxes. There's some truth in that. And and then the second item is that sovereign currencies have been in circulation for a long time. And so a bit like the first mover advantage with any social network, um, launching a new money means that you have to persuade enough people to adopt it that other people will have a strong incentive to adopt it. And that makes it, unless you have a huge technological advantage, or the incumbent does a terrible job, like in Venezuela, where people are actually taking up Bitcoin because it's more stable than the Venezuelan Bolivar, um, makes it very difficult for an for a challenger uh, to succeed. I think the payments function is probably still the best or the most... Um, the, the the closest use case that will be viable in the future. I see a lot of, first of all, because payments are in many ways quite inefficient at the moment, particularly in America. Uh, and then secondly, because the technology is very well suited to the transfer of value in that in that sort of way. And I think their disintermediation actually stands a chance of in the short term uh, overcoming uh, some of the uh, costs that, that have tr- traditionally affected the payment system. Do you think, That crypto
2: uh, technology uh, has applications uh, for for anti-corruption schemes or or programs. Your your mention of Venezuela prompted me to to think of this. Right, if uh, one of the applications people talk about are are smart contracts, right? That if you can show that actually, no, this is my title deed. I do own this property. This is how it makes. uh, If that became more widespread, uh, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, it might. might be harder for governments to engage in um, bullying of citizens or or bribery, corruption. If it's easier to prove uh, who owns what, it it seems to reduce incentives for that kind of behavior. Uh, I think that's
1: right. I think in in a lot of low-trust societies, removing the role of the government in assuring a lot of these very basic um, identity issues, who you are, what you own, who your family member is, what belongs to you, can be very advantageous. Of course, governments still have a monopoly on force, which means that if they're very stubborn about it, they, they, they could very well still impinge upon you and abuse you and so on. But they're going to have a hard time justifying to the outside world that what they're doing is actually legitimate because you will always have something to point to that is outside of the control of the government that shows that in fact, the government is lying about the state of affairs. Yeah. Hmm. It's kind so. of an
0: additional uh, 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 hurdle or barrier. I mean. Th- at the end of the day, if you're in a, a you know a country with a, a unreliable kind of governance structure, and uh, the wealthy landowner in the next village wants your plot of your plot little plot of farmland, they go bribe a, a an official in the in the capital. You can't even make it to the capital and leave work that long, and they go drop a bribe and hey, guess what? This the the central record record repository says this land actually belongs to the wealthy landowner. Well, you can say well no, here's my here's my smart contract showing that this land actually belongs to me. And yeah, the, at the end of the day if the police if if the police force comes and kicks you off the land at the behest of the major landowner, that only helps you so much, but it's an additional hurdle for them to overcome. And that's a marginal improvement and a significant improvement. I mean, there's some people's lives that hurdles enough to prevent them from losing. Uh, their property rights, or to allow them to uh, um turn that into secure a, a security, a way of uh, leveraging for you know a loan or improving their life in other ways. I can show I have property, so I can get a loan on the basis of this, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that's that's a big deal, even if it's only a marginal improvement. I, I like something else you said, Diego, which was the, uh, from the Venezuela uh, example. So you have a place where a dysfunctional central government with runaway inflation. So their central bank has been, I guess, printing money to try to keep up with inflation, destroyed their currency. And you also have subsidized electricity. So the costs of mining Bitcoin have are, are lower, are artificially low. So you get a lot of crypto mining there. And so what's interesting is that Bitcoin, based off its original premise by Satoshi, is a failure arguably in the US, at least with its original intent. But that is kind of his intent in Venezuela, I mean, as an alternative currency, a way of kind of hedging against government incompetence, um, that's actually really interesting to me. So even if Bitcoin doesn't become a, a kind of a transactional currency in the U.S. or other more stable developed nations, it's in, it's it's a you can argue it's a good thing for the global community community to have it there as kind of a backstop when when countries go to hell, kind of like they have in Venezuela. And I it, think that's interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and perhaps the way to describe it is as a deterrent to to the worst forms of tyranny. The moment, you know, we some people believe that uh, nuclear arms, the, their one saving grace was the fact that they act as a deterrent to people behaving in very bad ways, particularly great powers. And I think there's something to that. And in this case, you are lowering the cost of opting out of the state for a lot of people who are oppressed. And I think that's a very beneficial effect. And indeed, what you see is that precisely the jurisdictions which are most subject to tyranny or most vulnerable to tyranny are the ones that have most enthusiastically adopted this technology. In some places like Russia, the government is actively trying to co-opt a lot of the programmers because they have some experience in co-opting a lot of the smart people who otherwise would deploy their talents to undermining the system. But in Venezuela, it seems like a good escape for, for some people who are uh, suffering a lot. So to, to the extent that cryptocurrency always will exist as an alternative. Uh, that I think changes the game a little bit for would-be tyrants. Hmm. And the the other item of course is that it's just been 10 years. Yeah. Electricity took about 40 years to deploy uh, all over the US. If you look at some, you know, the statistics around the impact of electricity on US GDP, they only really become visible in the 1920s, hmm. late 1910s, 1920s. The network effects take a while to take hold. So I wouldn't give up on the technology just yet because it hasn't been uh, absorbed by a large enough number of individuals. I think that can uh, eventually happen. And of course, the technology will keep improving. There's a tremendous amount of work going on. It's not something static that Nakamoto invented and then he went off and disappeared and that's going to be it. That's the revealed word. No, these things will be... um, will be living and improved. And arguably I think the real test at least in the US will
0: be so this is uh, Bitcoin's kind of live by 2009, he writes in 2008. So, but we're already into the economic recovery then. And we've been in a fairly steady pattern of recovery in the in the 10 years since. Who knows if that'll continue. But for now we have we've had this so Bitcoin has only existed in a period of economic prosperity in the United States. It'll be interesting to see what happens next time we have a major financial or economic crisis. Will that provide room? I mean, in a sense, will it act as, even as a backstop for a developed country like the U.S.? I don't know. Yeah. I'm uh, in the middle of getting ready for a uh,
2: one of the semi-regular lunches we do here at Cato where a bunch of colleagues bring lunch and we we have chats. And uh, for an upcoming one, I was looking over uh, one of the, the Mueller investigations indictments of uh, – a bunch of, of Russians for their behavior during the uh, the 2016 election, and through reading the indictment, is fascinating. Actually, the amount of state use of crypto that's gone on, so that the, these Russian intelligence officers allegedly, you know, they they had Bitcoin so that they could purchase purchase VPNs uh, and use servers in Malaysia. Uh, this. Yeah. It's a technology like any else. It can be used for pretty nefarious reasons as well as uh, laudable ones. Uh, but that's an unavoidable feature of any technology, I suppose. Absolutely.
1: And if you watch spy movies from the 60s, you will see that a lot of the deals that happen are in Swiss francs and done in Geneva <laughs> under some Swiss bank account. doesn't mean that Swiss bank accounts are a bad development. In fact, they were a very good innovation and they saved a lot of German Jews from being completely expropriated by the Nazis in the 1940s. So as, as Matthew says, it can be used for good or ill, but technology is neutral. We actually have a, uh, a writer, Writing a column for Building
0: Tomorrow right now, uh, I asked him. He, he's Swiss and has some knowledge of like kind of Swiss financial history. Uh, why the Zug Valley in Switzerland is such a hotbed of cryptocurrency innovation and speculation? Um, and I, we'll, we'll see what he says. But I'm interested in if if there are ties to that tradition of Switzerland as a as a, a haven from financial regulation. If it's just kind of a continuation of that legacy for the uh, digital age, so. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Keep an eye out for that for that article. Uh, a few other uh, points you made, uh, Diego, in in your in your essay, and you mentioned it here, which was the idea that there is legitimate use of decentralized cryptocurrency to to make uh, to kind of smooth the process of payments. Um, and you mentioned specifically international payments um, in your essay. Uh, why international as opposed to domestic? Why is that kind of the most one of the most promising? avenues
1: for crypto being relevant? I think the main reason is that you have so many hurdles to exchanging funds across borders. First of all, because you're dealing in separate sovereign currencies. Then second of all, because those sovereign currencies are managed by central banks. And then thirdly, because a lot of banks in countries like the United States, particularly with a fragmented financial system, simply don't have international ties, which means that if you're trying to send money from, say, the US to France, you have to probably send, first of all, you have to have funds in your bank account. That that bank will have a relationship with a bank in New York uh, to which it sends the funds that you wish to send to France in the first place. From your New York correspondent bank, as it's called, that will go to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve will transfer the funds. This is all simplified, but we'll transfer the funds to either the European Central Bank and then to the Bank of France, which is the Central Bank of France, or or directly to some French correspondent bank. And then finally, it goes to the recipient. Mm. So we're talking about five or six steps there. (laughs) Now, because of the Various regulatory regimes and the banking structure that we've got, it's simply very costly to transfer funds across borders, and you're always exposed to exchange rate volatility now for a limited period of time, the risk will be borne by your bank, but they're not going to do it for free. they charge you for it and the end result is that for a lot of retail transactions, say two or three thousand dollars, which is what most people send on any at any given time, you know that kind of number or even lower that kind of figure um you will have five to 7% of it being lost in fees. So it's very easy for even a relatively costly new technology, which is what cryptocurrency currently is, to overcome that if they reduce the number of steps that you have to go through. A prominent example is Ripple, which, I think at this particular moment is the third uh, biggest cryptocurrency by market cap, but it's been fluctuating with Ether for the second spot uh, for some time now. And they're a bit different from most cryptos in that they were originally designed by a group of programmers as an international payments crypto. Mm -hmm. And then those people said, we're going to set up a separate company to use this cryptocurrency, to transfer funds across borders. And so it doesn't operate on the same kind of process, electricity heavy process that I described for Bitcoin earlier. But the point is that what they do is they will take your dollars, they will transfer them into XRP, which is the native currency of Ripple, and then they will convert those into euros. And all of the transfer of value happens within the XRP network, which means that you don't have any of the hurdles that I described previously. And all you are left with is the exposure to XRP uh, and the exchange rate value with whatever currency you're transferring from and into. And so as a result of that, they claim to be able to lower fees by about 60%. Uh, So that's a major improvement over what's given. They're still small. They're still relatively experimental but from what i've seen they seem to have a compelling proposition and you know it's it's one of the applications that as i say will looks like it will be uh, at least competitive with existing technology in the near future yeah and if you can make uh that transaction cost 60%
0: cheaper um well that that that's i mean you're you're avoiding kind of a deadweight loss in the sense that like this is activity that doesn't have to happen now this is money that can be spent on other Economically productive things, and I think it's you—you know—in there that uh, disproportionate amount of international money transfers are by the most impoverished, right? So it's uh, workers in one country tra- transferring small, relatively small amounts of cash to families in the home country. Mm-hmm. These are people who uh, that bump a few percentage points extra income. Can make a really big difference in their in their ability to to sustain the family back home and, and the like. So it has a, a very um, kind of a progressive social impact as well on on on, on these on these folks. Um, there was something else we've talked about: smart contracts, international payments. Um, this might not be as uh, quite as sexy as some of this, some of those other implications, but um, you also mentioned um, internal corporate supply chains. Um, this wouldn't be cryptocurrency as much as the blockchain itself. So it doesn't actually have to be currency, but maybe explain that for our a, a
1: little bit. Sure. Well, anyone who works in, in, a, in a relatively large organization knows that database management is a nightmare. And one of the problems with database management is that right now most of us have them as files on our computers, on our desktops. And oftentimes they won't even be updated with new information unless we actively do so, even after other people have input new information. And if you're trying to coordinate with other people, it becomes a nightmare because somebody's name is wrong or you didn't realize that they were married or they lost their job and it's not incorporated and things like that. And so it can reduce or it can lead to a lot of waste of effort and time within an organization. Obviously, the advantage of decentralized ledgers is that they're automatically updated. And the advantage of using it within an organization is that you don't have to rely on electricity-heavy processes to make sure the transactions remain true. Because after all, it's still within an organization. The organization controls the ledger and it can define who has access to it and who doesn't. So it removes some of the issues that we've described with what are called open blockchains. These are called permission blockchains or private ones. Um, And from a transformative perspective, it's probably less impactful simply because you're dealing still within an organization. But it probably has quite widespread applications. Um, It's a bit like... A more heavy-duty use of Google Sheets or Google Docs, sort of things that we sometimes use when we're sharing documents across people, or you know, we use Notion to uh, put together a, a list of topics that we would discuss on this podcast, things like that. So I think that's the way, that's what I would compare it to. Cool. Um,
0: now I, I think we're ready to move topics to something that um, that uh, you brought to the table, Matthew. Uh, Which is – it fits with that decentralized vision, right? There's a group of um, cultural, social, political commentators in the US, uh, uh, Dave Rubin, who's a podcaster, Jordan Peterson, who's kind of a public intellectual. Uh, And there's been a growing concern um, among certain corners of – let me call them the – the New York Times called them the intellectual dark web, yeah, right? <laughs> a dramatic term, mm-hmm. but among among folks who don't feel like their their views belong in kind of the the main mainstream rhetoric, that they're being squeezed out by payment processors like PayPal and by platforms like Patreon, and they're looking to to crypto as kind of a decentralized answer to their problem. Can you explain some of that more for our audience and, and what the significance of that is?
2: Sure. Uh, Some listeners might be familiar with this uh, controversy, but it really fits into uh, maybe a corner of the battlefield where the ongoing culture war is being waged, right? So there is uh, ongoing concern about what people call deplatforming or censorship with popular platforms, whether they're uh, Twitter or sites like Patreon, which is a site where uh, content creators can raise money for their... Uh, their projects. Uh, There was a recent controversy about uh, Patreon booting a particular user for comments he made off of uh, Patreon, but uh, nonetheless uh, was accused by Patreon of violating uh, its terms of service. And this prompted some high-profile people like uh, Peterson Rubin and uh, Sam Harris, the uh, neuroscientist and uh, atheist commentator, to say they were going to leave Patreon.
0: And there's some real and, money at stake here. I think Peterson was getting $80,000 a month through yeah, Patreon. Yeah, they're making
2: quite a bit of money uh, from this. And and it's it's a big move for especially, I think, more so probably Rubin and Harris and Peterson because uh, for, for people like this, this is pretty... Probably this primary source of income, right? And uh, what, what's what the reason I threw this into to the notes is because Reuben, um, since announcing he was going to leave and and leaving, uh, has mentioned crypto quite a few times, saying, well, it's not just pressure from uh, companies like Patreon, but there's uh, pressure from payment processes, and he cited uh, uh, complaints with Mastercard, for example, and. As, any, as most people know, banks and payment processes do discriminate uh, certain uh, customers, whether they're you know, gun manufacturers or people who work with pornography. And this, I don't know, it got me thinking. Uh, at the moment, I don't know if crypto, if there's an asset out there, uh, cryptocurrency that's ideal for this. Uh, Bitcoin may be the closest, but the price fluctuates so much. Um, it's also not anonymous. Uh, but Ruben and Peterson are in the middle of building a competitor to Patreon where I'm sure they'll be taking crypto as a uh, payment. But uh, that's one way I support one application of this, right, is uh, as a way to circumvent processes that, uh, for better or worse, right, uh, feel under pressure uh, to not associate with people with certain political views. Uh, so in the long term, maybe crypto makes it harder to uh, push people out of the public sphere. Uh, but I think it's too early to tell.
0: Yeah. Well, there's an interesting degree to which like um, uh, Diego laid out some values, right, uh, in his essay and here in the, on the show about, well, you want efficiency in transactions. Most people also want convenience. Um, so things like cost, efficiency,
1: convenience, uh, transparency, and accountability. accountability is, is accountability. another one. Yeah. So having someone you can turn to for redress if something goes wrong. I think most people, libertarians perhaps less so because we are uh, more conscious of risk and more willing to bear it if the reward is more autonomy but i don't yeah. think that represents the typical person no, and i think we need to be aware of that when we discuss these things we're weird let's just <laughs> no, there <laughs> is a real
2: uh, I, I just a little anecdote but last week uh as, as paul mentioned you know i have some holdings uh, in this stuff but i have a cold wallet right and uh, you have to put in your password uh, but there is no bitcoin.com that you can you know Email or, or phone number to call if something goes wrong, uh, and I kept on putting my password and and it just was not working. And I was you know panic starts setting in about the sixth time <laughs> that this doesn't work. Uh, but the lesson is make sure that your um your caps lock is is off when you're trying to <laughs> do, do this stuff. But right. it was a real moment of you you if you send yeah. uh, these kind of assets to the wrong address, they're just lucky, you know, <laughs> like the yeah. the people you could uh, there's there's no redress at all. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it's a cost benefit yeah. uh, analysis here. and
0: maybe you're willing to bear that additional uh, inconvenience or risk um, or the lack of accountability in exchange for well I can say whatever I want on here no one there's no there is no intermediary intermediary or uh, maybe an intermediary with a lighter touch mm-hmm. between me and my my payers and so it's worth it right yeah, and that's a uh, that's i guess the calculation that people like ruben are are making right but uh, even
2: ruben i think and his allies have to be careful uh, even in making the shift to to crypto because if they they shift to an intermediary like coinbase that we discussed earlier they could run into the issue uh that gab the kind of the alt righty uh, racist twitter uh because they had a coinbase account and then coinbase booted them uh off so it seems like just adopting crypto isn't enough. You actually have to adopt uh, it in such a way that there is no uh, intermediary like Coinbase or company like Coinbase who can uh, still influence you. It's got to be a kind of cold wallet, do-it-yourself operation. Now, oh.
0: You kind of got in trouble a bit with the the Rubin fan base um, because you were actually – defend, as I understand, it, you were defending Patreon's right to – Push well, them off. Or, or... I think
2: anyone who looks uh, at these debates will find plenty of examples where platforms can be accused of hypocrisy uh, and for not applying their standards consistently. Uh, so Patreon claims that this guy Carl Benjamin violated their terms of service. Uh, whether you want to treat Patreon as the authority on Patreon's terms of service or community <laughs> guidelines yeah. is uh, another conversation. Uh, but uh, there are plenty of people who seem upset at Patreon because they think this is being arbitrarily doled out, and that Patreon's not really being fair. And my my what I wrote was, well, if if Ruben and Peterson are upset, then they are they are welcome to go and start their own thing, and and find the more information in the market, the better. Uh, you're always going to be disappointed by intermediaries like this. Uh, but I think in the long term. Uh, I'm skeptical that the kind of competitor that they're building will be successful because their, their unique selling point is that we're more tolerant of this kind of speech, which is speech that I think a lot of people find distasteful, but yeah. uh, time will tell, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it, it, there's a certain irony of folks entering into the marketplace of opinions and being annoyed when they're – the marketplace isn't a huge fan of of their opinion, right? I mean – yeah.
2: yeah. The, Well, we we had news today, so we're recording this on Wednesday, the 16th uh, of January. Uh, Roku announced that they're actually going to pull the plug on Alex Jones, Jones, right? So uh, I'm (laughs) sure uh, we shouldn't be surprised if Alex Jones starts talking a lot about crypto uh, as well, because part of the problem is not just getting a platform for the channel, but getting funding for the channel, because people don't want... Either their bank knowing that they support this guy, or they don't want uh, that found out.
0: And this is really bad PR for uh, for, for cryptocurrency, though, because you can imagine a world. I mean, the the last attempt uh, to create an alternative to Patreon was um, uh, the gun 3D printing uh, Cody Wilson. Oh, Defense Distributed. Defense Distributed. Yeah, yeah. He tried to kickstart hatreon Patreon for hatrion, yeah, <laughs> which again, not you know. So the idea of alternatives to these mainstream payment processors and platforms um, and these alternatives being fueled by crypto is like, this is where hateful people can go and, and exercise their freedom of speech. And we would defend their freedom of speech. But if your concern is the long-term like viability and thus the image of cryptocurrency is not just a place for, you know, the Silk Road drug exchanges and sex trafficking. And if you're concerned about that image, it's probably not great that you're, you know the big people who are flocking to your banner are Alex Jones and you know Jordan Peterson not that i put him in the same category of, as Alex Jones per se but yeah it, no, it's uh, at the same time that's why these that's why these things exist to provide um access to to free speech for even unpopular
1: and uh and and, and even that is precisely the the, the the dilemma of decentralization is that there's no one there to put a fence on anybody joining. Yeah, You can, so long as you own a token that is native to the network, you can interact whether you're Alex Jones or Mother Teresa. Yeah, And so uh, that's a virtue in a way because it makes censorship very difficult. But it also means that perhaps distasteful people who we would like to yeah. um, counter Uh, I mean, as individuals, I don't mean there's any sort of kind of justification for trying by statute to counter these people, but um, it's not not easy to, to limit them. On the other hand, when we leave it to intermediaries to decide and let people in or out, on their own judgment, there's the danger that they will do it excessively, that they will, you know, this is what John Stuart Mill warned us against, saying that Mm. that we shouldn't discount the possibility of social tyranny, not one that is enforced by the government, but rather by a group of people who find themselves a large enough majority to be able to impose their mainstream opinion on people who disagree. And often the people who disagree are wrong, but other times they're right and they're revealing a new truth and they're making us better as a result of that. And that is a possible danger. The other consequence, of course, particularly in the world that we live in, is that intermediaries will find themselves with a politically imposed duty to serve everybody because they exercise this function of being the gatekeeper so much that a certain corner of representative politics gets annoyed and forces them to welcome everybody. Make them a common carrier. Exactly. Like a public utility. Right. You're
2: seeing arguments like this coming from of all people, self-described conservatives and some people who call themselves libertarians. Is hey... Uh, We should just treat Twitter and Facebook as if they're common carriers or monopolies and that they have an obligation to carry uh, speech that's legal, Uh, which is certainly not an approach I would support. But I think that's indicative of actually where we are in uh, uh, public political rhetoric, that this is being seriously considered by people who describe themselves as fans of limited government.
0: I I think we have a robust um, philosophical apparatus as libertarians for dealing with this question. Like here are people who are – some of whom are legitimately hateful, or are, you know, not promoting edifying conversation in, in the, into the public uh, conversation. But at the same time, if you don't extend the the, you know, sometimes it's a, it's like the right to exit, mm-hmm. right? This is this is historically the question of, of uh, regulation of religion in places like Great Britain. It's it's uh, well, if you have a state church, are you going to tolerate dissidents? And dissidents say, well, we want the right to exit, to go to another country, to, to the Netherlands, to, uh, to the colonies, right, to, to Massachusetts. Um, and so battles over right to exit. What we are talking about here is, in a sense, a right to exit. Will we allow uh, people to leave these mainstream processors and whatnot uh, to exercise their potentially hateful or paranoid speech? But if we want to have that that freedom for ourselves, ultimately that's the price we pay. The price we pay for freedom of speech is allowing Nazis to speak hateful speech, right? Which is why groups like the ACLU will defend you know, the famous Skokie, Illinois, Illinois case. Like we're used to that as libertarians in the IRL world, in the non-digital world um, when it comes to legal jurisprudence. It's not that hard to imagine applying those same principles to cryptocurrency, to the world of payment processing, to the to these realms we're talking about here. We just have to realize, oh, it's really not that different of a use case. Um, I think one last thing I wanted to uh, touch on here. Uh, I don't know if you guys had heard about the double spend attack on
1: Ethereum. Uh, it happened earlier this month on Ethereum Classic, Ethereum which is, Classic, which is a smaller version of Ethereum that was created as a result of what's called a hard fork that happened in 2016. Yes. so Most just, people took the fork, right? Just to clarify, because Ethereum is the second largest cryptocurrency. Yeah. So but By size. Uh, if, you, if you hold an ether, don't worry. It was a different you're... network that was attacked. <laughs> Probably. Uh, maybe you should worry about for other reasons because you know, it hasn't been doing very well yeah. recently, yeah. But, uh, but not for the double spell attack. So I think
0: some of our listeners are not going to know what a double spend attack is. So real quick, maybe Diego, do you think you
1: walk them through simply what is a double spend attack? So we call a double spend attack a situation in which I, Diego, promise Paul to send him funds in a cryptocurrency network. And in some way, I'm able to promise them to somebody else. And both of you record that the transaction has gone through to both of you so that I can actually obtain more value that I can afford. Um, and normally, this shouldn't happen. If a cryptocurrency network is well designed, then it should prevent, by this mechanism of competition and the resolution of a complex mathematical problem, the um, situation in which someone can write wrong information on the ledger. But we mentioned the importance of computing power. If you have sufficient computing power on one of these networks, you can actually fool the rest because you have a majority of the um, effort that 's being expended, and therefore you can for at least for a period of time you can fool everybody else into believing that those both of those transactions are truthful and Because of the design of these networks that whoever has put more information into the ledger is the one that is followed, it can sometimes be successful. That is a double spin attack and that's a situation in which it can happen. The reason it happened on Ethereum Classic is that it's be, it's a small network. It's relatively easy to summon enough computing power to do so mm-hmm. and they happened to be able to do it. It was relatively cheap.
0: It's hard to imagine that happening for Bitcoin or either the, you know, the non-classic either because of the sheer size and cost. Yeah,
1: to give listeners some idea, it would cost – anywhere between three and $500,000 to attack the network for an hour. Mm. And that still doesn't guarantee you that you'll be able to defraud anybody. So unless you have a tremendous amount of overwhelming computing power, which gives you a lot of certainty about the ability to defraud the system, you probably don't have an incentive to do it. The other reason, of course, is that Bitcoin, if if you're involved in this space, and you have the ability and the incentive to attack the network, you probably have holdings in crypto. And- an attack that discredited the network would probably hit hit your bottom line. So even if you're in a position to do it, you probably don't have a long term incentive in doing so because it's bad for you. Maybe to
0: put this in a in a easily con- conceptualized manner, um, it it, it's, it strikes me as fundamentally similar to uh, check kiting, where or various forms of check fraud, where so I take I go to the bank and I I'm, I've created a fake check saying that you paid me. $10. And um, I take it there and they cash it for me. But the problem is that you actually haven't agreed that transfer. Your bank has not is not going to send that money over, but they won't know until the end of the business day or when they settle up their accounts. All the banks communicate with each other, with the Federal Reserve, with the central bank, and say, these are all the payments that were approved. But there's a lag of time between the check being written and cashed and the settling up process. And the same – and people can take advantage of that. Banks usually tolerate a certain amount. I mean, they'll prosecute you, but they're willing to put up with that risk because people demand convenience. So usually they'll release a certain amount of a check you deposit right away even though there's a risk that you are defrauding them. Um, But they're willing to do that again because people want convenience. Um, But that's kind of fundamentally fundamentally what's happening here. You have a block of the blockchain that's still being written – and your – our transaction, the money you're sending to me is written on there but the settling up process isn't done until the entire block is written right. or a number of blocks are written and that's that gets more complicated. But there's a period of time at which it's on a block but will that be the final block that makes it on the ledger and that who, – who, whose block gets the settle up? Depends on how much comp- computing power you have. That's right. Am I kind of getting that right? right? Okay. So because the
1: heuristic is whoever has the longest chain is yeah. the one that everybody else follows. That's the that's the chain on which everybody continues to build. So that if you have enough computing power, you for a period of time will be able to get ahead from You're the truthful longer, yeah. from the truthful chain, yeah. and in that way yours becomes the truthful one. And in that event, and if that is discovered, you need to have a hard fork. Which is a redesign. It's basically going back in time on the blockchain, which is not supposed to happen because these things are immutable. And then two chains emerge and you get ethereum classic and you get regular ethereum as a result.
0: It also requires some kind of central action to do that, which is kind of a big no-no. I mean, that's, right. that's why hard forks so controversial is because the whole point was that a central authority shouldn't be allowed to go in and that's right. make those kinds of decisions. So it often causes, I mean, it was a big deal when ether made that fork. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Back in the day, why shouldn't we be all that concerned about that though? So you mentioned it's really expensive to amass that kind of computing power. Um there's something else you mentioned which had to do with if you're doing – if you have amassed that power, there's a handful of miners who tend to exercise a disproportionate amount of power and could do this. They kind of like shoot themselves in the foot
1: though if they are involved in that kind of action. What is that? Can you kind of flush that out for us? Sure. I, I, let me make the following analogy. Imagine you are someone who has the resources, is very wealthy and has the resources to rob a bank effectively. But it happens that that person is also a major depositor at the bank and has a lot of their funds at the bank. It could get a lot of funds as a result of robbing the bank on one day, but if the bank goes bust and cannot um, pay back its liabilities on the next day because not only of the robbery, but because it's completely lost its reputation and it's had a run by every other depositor, then you're probably hurting yourself in the end because of your actions. And there's a similar thing in play, I suspect, um, with a lot of the people who w- would be in a position to attack any cryptocurrency network because they own a lot of computers mm-hmm. or they somehow are able to rent them. And that means they have knowledge and they have access to resources. And that probably means they've been doing the mining for some time, which means that they have some stock of crypto. And therefore, attacking the network, unless the potential gains, adjusted for the probability of winning, which is another thing, um, Outweigh your existing stock, you're not going to do it. Uh, so I think it's it's more difficult than most people assume. Alex Tabarrok um, pointed out this this event on on Marginal Revolution, his blog with Tyler Cowen, and he said that the one of the deleterious consequences of crypto prices going down is that you suddenly have a lot of spare capacity among computers because you no longer require as much computing power to push through transactions, nor do people have an incentive to be involved in that that spare capacity might be deployed for deleterious purposes to try and rob networks. But I don't think we have enough evidence to... uh, uh, to argue
0: that's the case. It was good timing for him because he wrote that article on like January 8th and then the double spend on Ether Classic happened on January 9th. Right. So, you know- Maybe for- he had a tip. We should probably <laughs> right. check it out. should be <laughs> investigating Alex here. Yeah, that's right. Well, th- thank you guys for coming in and and talking about decentralization and crypto here. We can all rest a little bit easier. You're probably not going to be f- fall, falling prey to a double spend attack, but we should cut things off here because uh, our- intermediary with a capital I. Our producer, Tess Terrible, will give me a hard time otherwise. So until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find this on the web at www.libertarianism.org.